Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohen is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Barrows, Acton Institute's COO, and Michael Miller, Acton Research Fellow. Uh, today, we'll be talking about the sentencing last week of Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Thanaros, the disgraced tech startup which promised to revolutionize blood tests but only to deliver precisely nothing. First, however, I want to begin our discussion with the sudden collapse of the crypto exchange FTX and a whole host of connected firms founded by Samuel Bankman-Fried, who appears to have defrauded both clients and investors of as yet incalculable funds. Bankman-Fried was also active in donating massive amounts of money to political campaigns, and he himself campaigned for greater government regulation of cryptocurrencies and exchanges. Uh, Titus uh, Tekera wrote an excellent piece touching on both of our topics last week for the Acton Power blog, which I'll uh, link to in the show notes. Uh, but there have been even more developments in both stories since that was published. Uh, what we know now about the nature of the fraud perpetrated uh, with FTX is nicely summarized by CNBC's reporting, which uh, I'll link to again in the show notes. Alameda Research, the fund started by Bankman-Fried, borrowed billions in customer funds from its founders exchange FTX, according to a source familiar with company operations, who asked not to be named because of the details were confidential. The crypto exchange drastically underestimated the amount FTX needed to keep on hand if someone wanted to cash out, according to the source. Trading platforms are required by their regulators to hold enough money to match what customers deposit. They need the same cushion, if not more, in the event that a user borrows money to make a trade. According to the source, FTX did not have nearly enough on hand. Its biggest customer, according to the source, was the hedge fund Alameda. The fund was partially able to cover up this activity because the assets it was trading never touched its own balance sheet. Instead of holding any money, it it was borrowing billions from FTX users, then trading it, the source said. None of this was disclosed to customers, to CNBC's knowledge. In general, mixing customer funds with, and co- with counterparties and trading them without explicit consent, according to the U.S. securities law, is illegal. It also violates FTX's own terms of service. Sam Bankman-Fried declined to comment on allegations of misapproving, misappropriating customer funds, but he did say its recent bankruptcy fo- uh, filing was a result of issues with uh, leveraged trading positions, end quote. So misuse of client funds is very, very straightforward type of fraud. But how should we think about leverage trading in in both cryptocurrencies and beyond? Because leverage trading is something that occurs with stocks, with bonds, with all sorts of commodities. How do we think through those sort of moral implications as distinct from, you know, yes, you shouldn't take money that's not yours – um, that's a pretty straightforward uh, ethical analysis. 
Yeah, leverage trading is something like you said that happens in all different types of scenarios. And there's a couple of questions that immediately arise when you engage in leverage, and that is just what degree of leverage, right? And uh, and then are people fully aware of the kind of leverage that's at play? And so, uh, you know, banks themselves are effectively leveraged on the demand deposits that they have and that they lend out to other other people, right? Yes. And yep. so, uh, you know, you have sometimes we have excessive leverage, and then there's uh, there's insufficient liquidity when people say, hey. I'd like my money back. And so what are the terms of the leverage? Um, are people aware of how much leverage they have at stake? And and leverage, of course, can can be a good thing, right? I mean, it can anytime you you buy a house and you put down a 20% deposit and your house goes up in value, you're leveraged, right? You're yeah. leveraged. That 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 money is working for you in, in a more powerful way. Uh, but of course, the downside risk then is more powerful as well, right? So if something goes wrong and a firm is uh, is becomes illiquid, they f- can suddenly find themselves in a situation where they're effectively bankrupt. So in this case, it sounds like, you know, SBF, as he's known as, uh, yeah. SBF really um, did not stick to the commitments that he had, uh, you know, mentioned to venture capitalists and others who had invested in his firm. Uh, all sorts of risks were uh, collateralized in ways that they should never have been collateralized. And as a result, when people lost confidence into the fund and they started withdrawing their money, Suddenly, they were illiquid, and he sought to raise more capital. And people looked, uh, you know, like Binance uh, took a look at the books, whatever they could discern from the, from the sloppy paperwork, and they realized, oh no, there's real issues here. We're not going to uh, to, to invest. So, yeah, yeah. And, and we'll talk about that sloppy paperwork later. This isn't this isn't the sort of Bedford Falls sort of savings and loan bank run. There's there's much more at play. <laughs> exactly. So, as we talk through. This angle of the, you know, of just the basic sort of accounting. And this is sort of the next layer as we dive deeper. Uh, last week, Thursday, the new FTX CEO, John Ray III, uh, who was put in charge of FTX after it declared, filed for bankruptcy, he uh, managed the bankruptcy of the disgraced uh, energy firm Enron said in a statement, quote, never before in my career have we seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here, end quote. To talk about this in terms of Bedford Falls, we know that the uncle misplaced the money. There was a very, you know, there was a real problem with, you know, customers demanding their deposits, those deposits not being there. But there was a very precise, you know, handoff of cash that was misplaced and pocketed by Mr. Potter. Um, while the losses to investors may have been, and again, this is we don't even know the magnitude of this. It may have been as high as eight billion dollars. It appears that without a full forensic accounting, we may not know for some time. Uh, we have also know that penthouses, perks, and other personal items were expensed and that those expense reports were oftentimes submitted through uh, chat applications and were approved by supervisors with a simple personalized emoji. Uh, often when we're discussing firms, particularly technology firms, we tend to stress innovation over the sorts of nuts and bolts business practices, corporate governance, those sorts of things. Uh, this has clearly been a mistake in this case. Um, there were a lot of people, including the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, that had money tied up uh, in FTX. What sort of questions should investors and also normal, just normal everyday people interested in uh, 
in maybe investing in companies, putting, you know, allocating funds in their 401ks. What sorts of questions should they be asking about corporate governance and sort of best practices for business? Because oftentimes, you know, the the, the shiny product or the shiny, you know, uh, promise uh, tends to tends to be what we talk about and not these sorts of these sorts of things that we assume are all going on but aren't necessarily. So let me just throw out a few ideas and obviously this isn't uh, investment advice but I'm just going to tell you uh, how I've approached the whole <laughs> investing question and that is I don't have the time or the resources to do my own due diligence so I effectively outsource that to other firms whether it be you know a mutual fund company or something that you know is out there spending full time looking at these different companies looking at new ideas and anything that I do on a on a case by case basis because I do for example have a little bit of uh, crypto investment I take it completely as a as a part of a, a risk portion of my portfolio and so what I think is pretty extraordinary about this particular case is that here you have uh, enormous venture capital funds that are being invested in FTX. And you would think that such people would and do their due diligence, that they really examine what they're getting their money into. And they're not just looking at the potential technology or some financial engineering that might have some efficiencies and, and uh, be able to you know, engage in arbitrage. But, but they're also taking a look at the management and that there are adults in the room that um, have a good business model and good accounting controls. And I think that appears to be thus far one of the big uh, deficiencies is that people trusted the persona and the and and the brilliance of of the people and not so much the other elements that are necessary for a company to thrive. Right? I mean, you could have the greatest idea in the world, but if you have either inept management or worse, if you have unethical management, then you're asking for trouble. Right? Yeah. And so, so a great idea only takes you so far, and you can have genius, but if genius isn't tempered by ethics and prudence. Um, you, you're asking for trouble. So that's why I outsource to a lot of people. Maybe Michael has some additional yeah. thoughts in that regard. Well, I mean, I think it's the, you, there's a lot of, lot of things to, to discuss because there's like multiple layers that are, that are all kind of interwoven. So one of the questions is this question of like Ontario Teachers Fund. So I think it relates to a larger thing that Steve just brought up. Why? So Aristotle has this line that I like where he says, young people are good at geometry, but they don't have phronesis, which means practical wisdom. Uh, and so you brought up, Dan, this, this question is like, okay, there's like a technical element in FTX and then there's the crypto element, uh, but there's also controls and investment and, and like prudence to, to run a fund like this. And so one of the questions I think we should ask is why were people so enamored of Sam Bankman-Fried? Why, when he shows up in his shorts and his T-shirt and he's kind of a cool guy, nonchalant, like you've seen pictures of sitting next to like Bill Clinton and all these, you know, older people who, who should have some sense of like moderation and wisdom and where there's a tension between enthusiastic support of new innovation and this just kind of fawning over the kid. Um, and I think part of it is just contagion. So uh, the famous uh, French uh, philosopher, René Girard, uh, talks about this problem of contagion. People uh, imitate this mimesis. They, they, they want what other people want. And so everybody wants to be part of it. And there was a sense in crypto, like, you better get in now. You better get in now. I got to be part of it now. Uh, Luke Burgess um, wrote a, a very good book called Wanting, 
where he discusses um, how how mimetic desire and contagion shape a lot of our our economic ideas. So I think that's going on, um, and I also think that uh, there's a a misunderstanding, and we can probably talk about this in more detail. But let me let at least interject it now. Um, the whole kind of ethos and ethics around Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX is, you know, the, what, what do they say? Move quickly, break stuff, and solve problems. And I heard a guy, um, Brantley Milligan, at the Catholic Crypto Conference, he, he said, in Web 3.0, it should be move slowly and don't lose other people's money. Yeah. As opposed to move fast and break stuff, right? So one is, like, it, it's, and, and this is maybe a, a broader thing, but maybe... Part of the problem with Sam Bankman-Fried and, and, and FTX is they're operating in Web 2.0 and 1.0 where they're going to break stuff, break stuff, and move quickly and be innovative. But actually, we're dealing with like people's money, including uh, no, not just Tom Brady, but uh, Ontario but teachers. teachers. Yeah, yeah, teachers' pensions funds. So why are they why are they so enthusiastic to do that without doing due diligence? Why were the adults in the room not doing due diligence? Well, I think, as I've talked about on this podcast before, we don't have very many adults in the room. I mean, this is our problem. I mean, like, and it's like, I mean, we don't, we don't think about the way we deal with everything from uh, uh, transgender surgeries to crypto. There are no adults saying stop, right? Now, I'm not, by the way, I'm not opposed to crypto. That's not what I'm talking about. I was talking about FTX thing. Like, stop, wait, let's, let's pause. Let's think. Um, but I also think the whole ethos of kind of utilitarianism that you see, right? All over the place, like the greatest good for the greatest number. I mean, you see, he's very enthusiastic about effective altruism. Right. Um, and we're going to figure out, we're going to use a technical, uh, you know, means, a little technical analysis to like make money, solve the world's problems, et cetera. But actually, what you, you need more than utilitarian calculus, you need prudence. And prudence is seeing the world as it is rightly. And there's this idea of virtue and prudence and justice. And so even if you're not regulated, you shouldn't take money that doesn't belong to you and secretly invest it in another uh, group, uh, organization, or, or you shouldn't be kind of manipulating and breaking your terms of service, even if it's not illegal. And so what I think what this, this episode shows is that we have like deep philosophical and sociological problems of which this is a highlight, that we, we think in consequentialist terms, like only the consequences matter. Uh, I think that the philosopher Frank Beckwith said, the, one of the worst parts about consequentialism is the consequences are always bad when you use consequentialist ethos, right? But utilitarianism, effective altruism, it's kind of this technical solution to the problems of our time. And then it blows up because, you know, the reality is you need prudence, you need justice. You need to take honesty seriously. You need to take virtue seriously. You have to do an examination of conscience. You have to move forward. And what you could see here was really just um, frenzy, frenetic technocracy. Um, and when it blows up, now we're surprised. I, mean, I don't think we should be surprised. And the last thing I'll say is I don't think this is commentary on cryptocurrency or decentralized ledger technology. I think it's a it's a it's an interesting element. And the last thing I'll say is notice that the Enron was big into corporate social responsibility, right? Which was a substitute for ethics. And now these guys are into ESG, which is just another relativistic politically fashionable substitute for the basic ethics of doing business. Yeah. It's kind of it's just classic. It doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all, unfortunately, that people who are big into ESG or CSR 
are forgetting to do ethics. Yeah. Michael, you reminded me of a couple things. One is the very first time I heard of FTX, which was when the logo was printed on the back of a fortune cookie I got from a Chinese restaurant with no explanation as to what it was, what it was, you know, it was just this thing. And, you know, they wanted you to, you know, I'm sure Google the name or whatever, get in from there. But the idea that, you know, it's showing up on the back of fortune cookies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, or just on TV, like, you know, invest in your crypto. I mean, sorry to interrupt, yeah, but no. Steve, Steve and I were just at this Catholic crypto conference, which was very good. Like, it was very interesting. And I learned a lot. But one thing I learned is like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I mean, it's really complex. I mean, I've, it's, it's, and so the, when you're seeing ads on television, like, do you want to invest in crypto? Join this, you know, exchange, just get in now. Right. And I, I think, again, part of it has to do with frenzy. And again, I'm not down on crypto. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about like the ethos around it was one of contagion and frenzy and, and et cetera. There are people at this crypto conference who said you should absolutely, they're Bitcoin maximalists, you should buy Bitcoin. And that's a whole different question. The question I think is the fortune cookie, the, you know, the, the Super stadium, Bowl the Super Bowl ads, all this stuff that's all part of the this. Miami Heat Stadium. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, but it does. And then the whole effective altruism, like we're going to solve the world's problems of poverty and all this whole kind of like um, enthusiasm without prudence. Yeah. Sorry, Dan. No, there's a great, when you talk about the adults in the room, I reminded of that Super Bowl ad because what is it? The Super Bowl ad is this big pitch for FTX using the sort of language that you talked about. And then it pans to Larry David, who's a you know a prospective investor or prospective user, and he goes, "Eh, I don't get it." And the joke is supposed to be that Larry David is missing out, but the joke is, you know, the joke is on is on those that bought in at this point. Is you know, uh, those who didn't understand should not have put money into this. Yeah, um, it's definitely a caveat emptor, right? Let the buyer beware. If you really don't know what you're investing in, then you have to recognize that what you're doing is purely speculative and, you know, be prepared to take your losses accordingly. You know, it's interesting you mentioned earlier re regulation and Sam Bankman-Fried, as I understand it, there was an article in Reuters that he had already yes. uh, acquired um, stakes in other companies that were already under a regulatory umbrella, whether yeah. it be the CFTC or the SEC. And, and at the same time, he was engaged in intense lobbying to craft future legislation uh, that would regulate the industry. And a couple of things that we need to reflect on, I think, is that, first of all, um, we do need individuals who are uh, in the industry to have a seat at the table when helping you know, congressional leaders to craft prudent regulations. At the same time, there is that risk. And it's almost invariably going to happen where they're going to want to craft the regulation in a way that's most favorable to their particular firm. And so when you have somebody that becomes particularly dominant in the industry, getting the loudest voice and the most attention, others in the industry are going to see that as a competitive threat. And so we don't know, of course, what's going on behind the scenes, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were others in the industry who saw what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing and he was getting a lot of uh, attention and thinking... He's going to craft this regulation 
to shape his firm in a way that's ben most beneficial to the firm, it could be a competitive threat to me. So, you know, it's a, it's a whole another topic to, to, you know, what 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 constitutes prudent uh, regulation that's not just outright rent seeking by the industry and uh, very complex topics for another day. But nevertheless, I don't think there's any doubt that SBF was engaged in a process to shape the regulation to his advantage and potentially to to detriment of others. Yeah, just one second before I turn to Michael, that that uh, company that he acquired a 10% stake in, this was a uh, uh, IEX Group, um, which was featured in uh, the Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys. This was the automated trading. And they had already uh, been under the U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission uh, for regulation. So he had an option to buy the entirety of that company. In fact, of course, now that will not happen. But uh, just some additional context there. Uh, Michael. I was just going to say, I think two, two points following up with both of you. Uh, one, I think Stephen's point is very important about regulatory capture. Um, this is one of the problems. Everyone's like, there tends to be. I shouldn't say everyone. We tend to try to f to try to find a regulatory response to the problems that are there, and and there's a place for regulation. Um, I think there's maybe even a deeper place for rule of law, like really clear rules of the game beforehand instead of. But there's also um, the problem of regulation is. A, regulatory capture, as Stephen already pointed out. You just see this with Facebook. You see this with agriculture. You see this across the board. I mean, the United States is regulated heavily and in pharma and agriculture and all these other – and it's it's big pharma, big ag, big tech that are wanting – that are writing the regulation that are actually excluding others and creating unfair uh, – you know, gains for themselves and just regulatory capture. The second part, so that's one thing we have to be aware of. The second part of regulation is that we're always looking for a technical solution to the problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death. And there is no technical solution. And so this has to do with the fact that like um, a free, reasonably free economy, right, of, of where commutative justice, that's justice of exchange takes place, um, requires more than simply like everything being regulated. It requires people to be, um, act in an honest, trustworthy manner. And when not, then, then both the market and the state can, can punish, right? And so that, that relates to the second point of, in one sense, you know, we can say caveat emptor, like bear, buyer beware. But in another sense, it's, it's a bit unfair to the buyers on FTX who actually thought based on the popularity, the Miami Heat Stadium, the commercials, that they were actually engaging in crypto in a safer way is what yeah, they Yeah, this is, they this is they on my have, fortune cookie. Yeah, this is I mean, a real thing. Right. <laughs> and so like, you know, like you can say Tom Brady or whatever, he, he invests, I guess he lost a lot of money on this. Like, okay, his investment advisors maybe should have said, Maybe we shouldn't go to FTX. So, uh, but I think it's it's also the fact, like you know, you've got these exchanges out there, and people are like, okay, how do I buy crypto? Well, I, I'm not sure, but I, I want to try Trip Pro, and I'll do more or less money on it. And you have a lot of reputable people saying buy crypto, and so they go to a place that appears to be reputable, right? They Google and they see like Coinbase or Binance or, or FTX, like okay, this is reputable. All these people are using it. There's ads for it, et cetera. And so in, in one sense, yes, I do. You have to be careful. But in another sense, I think we, what we have to do is be, we have to also say, one, there's dishonesty at the core of this. And why weren't the institutional firms, the big institutions doing due diligence? 
right? Because I, as Stephen says, I can't make a decision on this. So if I'm going to go to, if I'm in the Ontario teacher's pension, like those are serious professionals who should be doing due diligence before they put lots of money in with FTX. And again, it's this frenzy, but it's also, I think, a, a deep problem of, and I mean, we can talk about this or not, but like that manifests in a whole ethos of how we think about responsibility, social responsibility. I, mean, I think the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried and his people were like cool, effective anth- altruists, which I think is wrong, which I'll tell you why, mm-hmm. um, uh, that they're into the ESG movement. So they're all part of kind of the elite establishment, cool people. And so they got affirmed. I mean, this is like, you know, I direct that film Poverty Inc. I mean, that's what happens mm-hmm. to Poverty Inc. All the celebrities go to the establishment and they're just kind of like supporting each other. Um, Balaji Srinivasan, whose work I like a lot in his book, The Network State, and he has, if you can deal with it, it's an eight-hour podcast with Lex Friedman. I highly <laughs> recommend it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to listen to it twice. It's so good. But like he makes a point that there's a difference between science with a capital S and quote-unquote science. And he says, oftentimes, quote unquote, science is being used to undermine actual science. Well, what's actual science? Like verifiable, repeatable evidence. What's quote unquote on science? You know, and then this is again from Balaji Srinivasan. Uh, he says, well, it's uh, professors from Harvard, MIT, and Stanford all agree that this is the way we should do things. Okay, but is it repeatable? No, but they keep citing one another. All right. And so there's like kind of citation prestige that's going on. Well, the citation prestige that's going on in science is also the same thing with like the cool kids, right? ESG, effective altruism, crypto, you know, we reject the conservative, you know, Stephen Barrow wears a tie. What does he know? But I'm wearing my T-shirt and playing video games. I mean, again, I think it's a, a part of it is like I like innovation. I think it's great. But there has there has to be a connection to like a deeper vision of what it means to be a person and a, a deeper vision of society and, and ethics. Um, and you can't just operate on this kind of pseudo or like utilitarian political fashion. I think so that's another really big problem. So one of the things that I saw in preparing for this is there was a an ESG ratings agency that, you know, broke down their ratings, you know, uh, along numerous things. And one of the one of the ratings was corporate governance. And they had ra- they had rated FTX higher than Exxon in corporate governance. Because Exxon has, does oil, and oil is bad. But, like it's like Exxon, so, Exxon also has a board of directors, <laughs> and FTX never did. Like it's it's you look at these organizational charts, and it's it's literally you know dozens, if not hundreds, of companies. Um, there's no central board of directors. There's nothing. Um, Can I say this example, Dan? I'm, is, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's just it's perfect. I mean, it writes itself. Right. Um, if you, so I have already, I mean, I'm, I've written and published on the problems with corporate social responsibility. So I already have like confirmation bias negative towards ESG. Um, uh, but as Steven said, that's a whole other podcast. But your point about like ESG governance rates, FTX above Exxon. I mean, it, again, it writes itself. Why? Well, Exxon deals with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are bad, mm-hmm. right? Okay, never mind that, like, you know, plastic is made out of petroleum. Uh, you know, never mind, you know, that, that, you know, in order to get a cup of coffee, you need petroleum. Like, it's just fossil fuels are bad. They're not fashionable. 
You know, we're going to have fake meat and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's what's fashionable. And FTX, I mean, it's 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 actually, I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm actually trying to not be like flippant about yeah. it. Okay. But it, it writes itself. I mean, it's so obvious that what the cool kids think in the elites are false foods are bad, beef is bad, you know, technology's good, and, you know, uh, we're going to give governance awards to a group of kids who live in a in a 10 people in a Bahamas mansion who are talking about how they're always on amphetamines and they don't have a board, but Exxon, well, they do bad stuff. So they, I mean, it's just, and so the thing is, it goes back to this whole question of, I think, trust. Um, I mean, what's, it's like Mixoplex world, mm-hmm. right? That was for you. Cause yeah. you're like the person who would know what that means. Right. Uh, it, it's, it, it's so, it's so deeply disordered um, that I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm trying again, I'm trying not to be flippant about it, but it, it's, it's revelatory of the moral bankruptcy, the intellectual bank- bankruptcy of this kind of ESG, uh, movement. You know, I, I want to, uh, <clears throat> kind of carry the conversation in a little bit different direction. Was that, that too the, harsh? No, no. I think, I think, I think you're right on the money. Um, I, one of the things you've heard commentaries from other exchange CEOs, you know, crypto exchange, Kraken, Binance, et cetera, is that they're extraordinarily frustrated because this has given a black eye to the industry. Oh, yeah. And so I, you know, right. I've, I've heard a, a number of people say to me, see, isn't this just evidence once again, this is all just one huge Ponzi scheme. that's all going to come crashing down. And, uh, and of course, that causes people to lose confidence in the industry itself. And it, it goes back to an original question, which is, what value, if any, does the whole crypto market actually bring to an economy? Is this actually just a Ponzi scheme? Is it just made up tokens that people invest in and there's nothing behind it, et cetera? And this is very clearly how SBF saw it. There's a great interview with Bloomberg where he's talking about these – FTX had its own token, which is yes. also involved in this – um, and a lot of the accounting discrepancies are they just gave that an arbitrary value on their balance sheet. And they're literally, you know, they're manufacturing this token that they're assigning an arbitrary value to. And which is not a market. Which is not a right. market, but it's something we have seen. This is not something new. This is something we've seen in past failures in this industry. That's right. And that many people today in the in 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 different that operate different crypto exchanges according to different principles that explicitly repudiate a lot of this sort of action exactly. are very strongly against. Yes, you know, there, I mean, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of tokens out there, and and, and we know that individuals and companies have actually created tokens, made a pitch and then vanished, right? Mm-hmm. And so people lose their money through that kind of speculation. You know, uh, it, 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 you know, we have to ask the question, what is then the value, if any, that's behind this whole industry? And of course, a Bitcoin maximalist will point to, you know, the distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology behind Bitcoin and its potential as a form of sound money in the future. Um, there are also those who emphasize that distributed ledger technology creates new trust in exchange because you don't need a third-party intermediary to to verify um, in a, in a uh, payment clearing and settlement process. And I hope, because I, I do think that there is underlying value being created with these new technologies that will have traction in the future. And that until that, uh, you know, we're going through a process right now where all the spurious and speculative projects are, you know, 
the emperor's <laughs> has no clothes yeah. in some of them, and they're going to be found out, and they're going to they're 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 just going to be a flash in the pan. But I also think that uh, that the individuals in the industry who are seeking to do the right thing have every reason to be frustrated with the frauds that that show their faces and give a black eye to the industry because there is something behind this that I think is substantive that is going to have transformational effects in the finance industry, uh, transformational effects in just verifying that certain things are in fact authentic, right? Uh, yeah. And and in a digital world, you need that because we know that there, uh, you know, as Michael said. There's not a technical solution to the problems of sin, evil, and suffering, but that sin, evil, and suffering out there can at least be attenuated if you have a process that can help uh, provide a check and balance to people who are otherwise going to engage in fraud and deception. So, uh, and I think that, that technology does does exist that people are going to be able to you know to verify that a, a photograph is authentic, right? Yeah. And hasn't been deep faked, right? That's what these kinds of technologies can can do. And uh, so, anyway, it's unfortunate that we see this happening. Obviously, for the people who are lo- who've lost their money, uh, but also because it does, I think, uh, cause people to question whether or not there's underlying value within this uh, this world. Can I just say, I, I think that's a very super important point because I think there's a real question, like on the, let's just crypto quickly, on the on the Bitcoin side, right? And and you've already talked about, Steve, that this is a question of how to deal with sound money. And what we're seeing, of course, with inflation uh, is unsound money. So fiat currency can be really harmful to poor people because your savings goes away. And so part of what Bitcoin is trying to do, right, with Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is, is to create... Um, a, a, a sound money, like a digital type of gold. This is why it's always pictured in gold because it's fully, connected. A fully auditable, yeah, transparent auditable. monetary policy. Yeah, exactly. So that's the one side. And then there's the other side, uh, which is distributed ledger technology. And and I am very like, I don't, again, I don't know. I'm, st- I'm studying it. I, so I have to, but I'm very like positive about distributed ledger technology. Um, yeah, I wrote this little book, you know, called uh, Digital Contagion. And one of my critiques is that we're we're way too hyper-centralized. And so decentralized ledger technology and just decentralization generally, and I'm a big supporter of, I think it's part of the Catholic tradition. I'm Catholic. It's part of subsidiarity and it's part of the American tradition, right? Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville said, you look around, uh, how do Americans solve problems through associations, right? And so decentralization is a, a very, very important thing. And decentralized ledger technology, I think, uh, can be used, again, as Steve said, to verify lots of things. I mean, like sacramental records should all be, I think, on decentralized ledger technology so that they can't be manipulated. Uh, decentralization means that there's not like Google or Facebook or Twitter can't just turn you off or shut you down, or they can't just turn your servers off like Amazon web servers. You, you, it's harder to be deplatformed. Now, again, there's no technical solution to the problems of evil. So there's always going to be trade-offs. But I, I think that's a big problem with that FTX uh, is that it, it it's, this is why I said to you, Dan, as we were preparing, this is really not about crypto or decentralized ledger technology or blockchain, right? This is about FTX. It's about an, an ethos. It has, I think, something to do with Silicon Valley broadly. I think it has something to do with, it's a critique of utilitarianism and techno-utopianism for sure, but those things are not the same as, there may be overlap in a Venn diagram, but DLT and and and, and crypto are, are not, they're not the same as techno-utopianism. So they, this, is, this is interesting when you frame it in terms of centralization, decentralization, because one of FTX's strategies is, of course, regulatory capture, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. We've talked about ideological capture. They also uh, acquired, loaned out money to 
various other uh, uh, companies in sort of the cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency adjacent spaces. So I think this is a very conscious sort of reputational strategy. One of the other things they did was grants to academics, to journalists, and there was a wonderful story, and this is this is where I'm going to take this next, is uh, Kelsey Piper at Vox conducted a fascinating interview uh, over a chat with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried last week, uh, which I'd encourage all of our listeners to read, and we'll, we'll link this interview in the show notes. One of the interesting things to note is that uh, the project that she works for on Vox was given a grant by uh, one of these foundations established. She did stellar, honest reporting uh, uh, in spite of uh, this, but this was also a conscious strategy to buy influence in the media. Um, and she writes, uh, quote, as we messaged, I was trying to make sense of what behind the PR and the charitable donations and the lobbying Bankman Fried actually believes about what's right and what's wrong and especially the ethics of what he did and the industry he worked in. Looming over our whole conversation was the fact that people who trusted him have lost their savings and that he's done incalculable damage to everything he proclaimed only a few weeks ago to care about. The grief and pain he had, has caused is immense, and I came away from our conversation appalled by much of what he said. But if these mistakes haunted him, he largely didn't show it, end quote. In the interview, he states that the sort of regulations he lobbied for would not have helped, that they, quote, uh, they don't protect customers at all, end quote. Uh, on his ethical principles that we've, we've delved into, it's some of this effect of altruism, he said, quote, this uh, – referred to it as, quote, this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we all say the right sibyleths and everyone likes us, end quote. So, there, I mean, there's a, there's a real chance that we have someone operating in this world with a tremendous, with what was a tremendous amount of money, influence in the world, um, <coughs> influence in different political circles, who's acting essentially without a conscience. And this interview is just, um, uh, just it's, it's, it's so weird. Um, there are moments where he's like, you know, sometimes, you know, life just catches up to you. And it's just like, you know, he might be in the denial stage. <laughs> I don't know. But there's also the possibility that there are real people in the real world who do act without conscience. And we may have a case like here. Um, this is something that, you know, uh, folks on the left often attribute to business people in general as, as these figures that act without conscience because you can and do find them in the real world. Um, how should we go about thinking through the implications of that, that, you know, you could have someone who is completely immoral or at least amoral in the world – lobbying for changes in regulations he doesn't believe based on an ideological, uh, you know, uh, you know, an ideological stance that he doesn't even hold. Um, 
Yeah, of course, at Acton, we emphasize uh, both, uh, you know, a free and virtuous society. And so we know that in order to be truly free, we need a society that's filled with individuals who at least seek to engage in virtuous behavior. And then recognizing the fallen nature of human beings, this is where true corporate governance of the proper sort comes in, right? You have a, a, a series of extraordinarily intelligent young you know, math whizzes who have these great ideas are willing to take risks. They, they may even, you know, could, it could have under a different scenario worked out very well, right? But you need checks and balances because I think in the frenetic pace of this trading and, and sort of the, uh, the addictive power of making money. I mean, they, they've talked about this when during the last financial crisis is that they've done studies on the brain and seeing how the brain reacts to making enormous sums of money uh, by, by Wall Street traders. And, and we, I think, can, can underestimate how addictive that can be. And that's why you need individuals who are one step removed from the day-to-day engagement of taking this risk and seeing the money come in and being able to have you know, the mature uh, governance that you have at a corporate body. Because, yes, the worst-case scenario is you have some, somebody who actually operates with no conscience, right? Uh, that's the worst-case scenario. But I think even for people who are generally, you know, they seek to try to do the right thing, I think it's easy to get caught up in the frenzy of, of, of making money and, and making a big and taking more risk and taking more risk. And that's where you need others who are one step removed that can oversee and, and, uh, and engage in proper governance. Um, I, I would say, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I think what the serotonin levels go so high, you can, <laughs> yeah, right. well, I mean, we're embodied embedded persons, right? right. So we have to take seriously our, our embodiment, uh, not by, without reducing ourselves to being simply material. But, um, so I, you know, I don't know because I've never met Sam Bankman-Fried and I don't, and, and again, there's a lot of things we don't know about this. So it, this is a bit of a speculative podcast, obviously. Um, but maybe there's <clears throat> another way to think about this as well. I mean, I think. We all so there are there's you know, there's sociopathy and like psychopathy where people like don't have a, a, a conscience or things like I should say don't but it's deeply like broken. I also think there's just like malformed consciences where we get desensitized to evil, and so it and I again this is very speculative so I don't I don't know and maybe it doesn't apply to him so I mean I'm happy to be corrected. But it's interesting because I think what we also see is not simply that a person with no conscience, but with a very deformed conscience, me, dealing with like both conceptual areas that are both obvious, but that you have to obey. So, you know, it's like Václav Havel's greengrocer, right? You have to have the sign up that says workers of the world unite. So here in this thing where he says that woke is this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say the right should bless so that everyone likes us. I think that one, you have this kind of utilitarianism that 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 Sam Bankman-Fried seems to be kind of a technocratic utilitarianism and effective altruism, I think, is one of the manifestations of that, which I'll talk about in a second. So there's already a, a disordered ethical system under which he's operating. And then a cynicism can arise because you know some of the stuff isn't true. But if you say it's not true, you're just going to get blasted or you're going to get ostracized, right? Uh, so again, it's the green grocers of the world, you know, workers of the world unite. So what happens is you start saying things that you know aren't true and that you know other people know aren't true. And everybody's knows they're not true, okay? But it's what the political fashion establishment regime, however you want to check, says. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's, I think, in one sense, maybe not just a lack of con conscience, but an awareness 
this is all a sham. And so we're under a, this, I mean, this is like a little bit hard to articulate, but then we're no. under this one sense of like, okay, we have to be utilitarians and we have to good people who care about other people. And we have to do these things. Now we all know that there's, there's no real reason why I should do that. Like if in a utilitarianism, this is why you see like eugenics and abortion, all this stuff is like all kind of gets mixed in with like care for the environment and like, you know, injustice toward the poor can all be worked out together, but they're kind of this feelings of feelings because we just feel stuff. And and part of it has to do with the reduction of rationality to the empirical, right? So this is, of course, for those of you who know the Regensburg Address by Benedict XVI, this is his critique of the West. We've reduced reason to the empirical. The only things that can be rational are those things which are empirically verifiable. Well, the problem with that is twofold. One, you can't empirically verify that statement, which means it's incoherent on its own terms. But two, it opens up a type of emotivism where all the fundamental human questions of life, beauty, truth, goodness, right, wrong, mercy, life, dignity, are all kind of relegated to the emotional realm. And so you're in a competition between kind of emotive deals. And, and this is incoherent. And Sam Bankman-Fried is not stupid. And, and neither are the Silicon Valley, you know, tech types, uh, utopians who believe this. But you've got Yuval Harari and the whole, you know, ethos of like death is a technical glitch and transhuman. They're all trying to work these things out. Meanwhile, there's like all this incoherence. And everybody realizes this is nonsense. There's nonsense. So you know what? It's just a shibboleth that we well Westerners use so that people will like us. So I think there's like this, this tension that's, that's breaking down there. And so I think, you know, in one sense, <clears throat> um, Sam Bankman-Fried has just has no conscience. Okay, how are we going to take that? Another thing is like he's been inculcated and desensitized to evil. He's been, he's been inculcated in a, in a view of the world that's fundamentally incoherent and when you have fundamental incoherence, like how, how do you operate? I mean, it, it creates a type of psychosis. I mean, I don't mean like clinical yeah. psychosis, right? So, I mean, there's more I could say there, but I mean, so that, that, that would just be a one, maybe a way of saying, maybe it's not simply doesn't have a conscience, but that his conscience and the general consciences are, are, are malformed because we, we're not dealing with fundamental questions. And the last thing I'll say is, and you see this in effective altruism, right? I mean, effective altruism is, you know, we're going to do the greatest good for the greatest number. How can we be the most efficient technically to solve the problems of poverty? And a lot of it comes from the philosopher Peter Singer, right? Mm -hmm. The Princeton yeah. philosopher Peter Singer. And so um, can, I, can I do yeah, a quick absolutely. critique? Okay. So like one of the things Singer says, <clears throat> and so the, 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 here's what I want to say. Uh, one of the problems that we're seeing at Sam Bankman-Fried is at the bottom ground, there are conceptual errors and moral errors, okay? And w when you start to ramp those up over time, they just, everything gets more distorted. So it looks like he doesn't have a conscience, but there's conceptual errors. It's leveraged. Yeah, it's leveraged. Yeah, it's <laughs> highly leveraged conceptual errors. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so but as a quick example, there's a wonderful book called The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience by Bennett and Hacker. Uh, Bennett's a, a neuroscientist and Hacker's a Wittgenstein scholar at, at Oxford. And they say so much of modern neuroscience and all the studies are based on conceptual errors of mutant Cartesianism, right? Degenerate Cartesianism is what they call it. And they, what they mean is in, in Descartes, you have like the mind and the body, right? Res extensa res cogitans, right? For the philosophers who are listening. Those three philosophers who are listening. Okay. Um, and so he says, what most modern neuroscience is just, you have the brain and the rest of you, right? But as Hacker says, Who's this self that has a brain? And so we're doing all these studies based on conceptual errors. Well, the same thing with like effective altruism at, <clears throat> and utilitarianism. There's conceptual errors. And so let me give you an example of a, a conceptual error. Um, 
uh, or an, at least an error, er, er, yeah, an error in concept. So Peter Singer, the utilitarian, mm -hmm. right? He says, we have to help the poor. Now, I have a question. Why do we have to help the poor? Like, why is helping the poor better than not helping the poor? Why is justice better than injustice? I mean, what's the utilitarian argument that justice is better than injustice? I mean, justice would only be better if, than injustice if it's going to help me in the long run. But if I can make the money now, and who cares about those guys who are going to lose out? There's no utilitarian argument that justice broadly should be better than injustice or that reason should be better than non-reason or irrationality, right? And this is like a really big foundational problem at the bottom of the whole technocratic ethos. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> so then Peter Singer, in an emotive expression, says, imagine you're around a pond. This is like effective altruism, right? You know this a yeah, pond story? Yeah. Okay. So you imagine you're around a pond and a child falls in the pond and you have an expensive suit and expensive shoes, right? Is it worth it to jump into that pond and rescue that child? And everybody would say, of course, I'm not going to forsake my suit and my expensive shoes to rescue a child because a life is more important than that. Okay. Now on utilitarianism, I'm not sure like why a life is more important than that. I mean, I, I think I know why, but <clears throat> remember- a lot of effective altruists also support population control, where we sterilize millions of Indians, the United States and the World Bank and, and, and Indian government. We sterilize millions of Indians. As Oya Banujua Kocha talks about in her book, Target Africa, we have spent billions of dollars reducing populations. We've created gender imbalances. We've practiced eugenics in America and abroad. <laughs> it's part of the progressive movement. Thomas Leonard's Illiberal Reformer is a great book if you're interested in reading that. Okay, so, but why these things matter? Like, okay, but let's just pretend like they do. Notice the pretend is important. Okay, so should you jump in and save the life? And everybody would say, yes, you should jump in and save the life. And who cares if your $500 or $1,000 suit is ruined? It's worth it. Okay, well, part of the problem with effective altruism is that's how they see the developing world. But that's a bad picture. It's a conceptual error of what's going on. What's actually going on is you have a pond or a lake, and across it is this very rickety bridge, and children are falling off. <clears throat> but there's not just one person in suits. There's lots of people in suits sitting around the pond waiting to jump in to save the next child, and then they bring their clothes to the dry cleaner, they go back to the hotel bar, they have a scotch, and they write their next grant. <clears throat> and, so, <clears throat> and so nobody builds the bridge. That's right. So the poverty industry creates incentives for nobody to build the bridge. Now, if you look at the situation, do you think it would be a good idea to jump in? Like, of course, in the individual instance, yes, but what we should really do is build the bridge. And so like at the bottom of effect, it's just, it's just one image because that's yeah. his image of <clears throat> effective altruism are deep conceptual errors about goodness, being, reason, the dignity of the human person, what a life matters, why life matters, and how to measure it. And so there's just incoherence everywhere. And so what you see is, I would argue, that part of the FTX problem is not just a problem with crypto. Or, it's actually a bubbling up of like just disordered ethos and, and rationality. So there's – and I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember who it was that I was listening to talk about this. But when you brought up the pond story, it was a someone was recounting a story of a woman who was reporting for the Indian Express, and this happens that there is this pond and there's a small boy that's drowning. Of course, and you should bystander, save bystander. Bystander goes in, saves the boy. The reporter's interviewing him. Uh, you know, 
you know, talking about, you know, you know, what, you know, what inspired you to do such a heroic deed? And he said, oh, well, there was, there was a girl I was with and I wanted her to like me. And that's disordered, but in a different sense, that's almost like a positive externality, that it's the heroic thing to save the drowning person. And so even though what might have been in this young man's mind was impressing this girl, because girls like heroism, girls like heroism. <laughs> Why is that's, heroism better than not heroism? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm sorry, but that's the point of like this whole thing is just messed up yeah. at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But keep going. No, but I, I think I, this is this is this is a uh, you know you reverse engineer this problem and you do it the other way and you do it of you know what everyone doesn't have to do it for the right reasons, but if the right reasons are taught. That sort of heroism mm-hmm. bubbles up um, because this becomes a cultural norm that even people in the moment, maybe they're not, you know, doing the precise moral calculus that you would like them to do or that's right for them to do. But the norms are there. Right. And you know what the best book on this is? No. It's The Abolition of Man oh, yeah. by C.S. Lewis. It's the whole first chapter. What you said, it's like... If you, if he says, we're laugh at honor, we laugh at honor and we're shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and we bid the geldings be fruitful. He's like, we've destroyed the chest. And this is actually part of the problem, which you're pulling out from another sense. Like yeah. if you have a, so the, even the effective altruism mo- mo- movement is still relying upon something deeper than that. A sense that life is good, being is good, nobility is good, even if they can't articulate it. So we just have have a moment left to get to our second topic. And this was uh, Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced on Friday, um, former CEO of uh, uh, Theranos, um, sentenced to 11 years. Um, what's interesting about this story in contrast is it's, it's a similar story of fraud. It doesn't have as many layers. I think this is a very transparent sort of fraud. Um, they advertised a product that they were not able to deliver on and kept on saying that they were able to deliver it until, you know, uh, things, you know, things come to light. Uh, what is, what is secret, uh, must be revealed. And it was, however, she's exhibited, um, contrition, um, made a statement before the court, uh, Senator Cory Booker, uh, uh, wrote on her behalf uh, to urge leniency in sentencing. And it reminded me of uh, very early on in this trial, there were uh, somebody released, you know, some notepads of her daily schedule and it talked about beginning the beginning the day with gratitude, you know, working out, eating right, praying, these sorts of things. And all of these things were things, you know, this was what she was writing on her daily schedule. It's, at the same time, she was defrauding essentially all of these people. And I wonder if there's, if there's anything, um, they should both face justice for crimes committed, but how should we evaluate if we have a very different attitude months down the line when there's a trial, maybe perhaps uh, Sam Bakeman fried will be brought to justice. How do we think about repentance atonement, making up for uh, these sorts of very grievous wrongs. Um, How do we think about justice in a more cosmic sense? 
Yeah, this is a little bit outside of my area as an economist, but I I can say that you know as you as you implied that over, it's going to take months, years to sort out the FTX mess. You know who knew what, who was saying what. You know, there's another there's other figures in this. It's not just uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, but uh, Caroline Ellison. Her predecessor, who resigned, that the Alameda is is the is the other research firm associated with FTX, and and I think it's going to be interesting as they go through and find out who knew what, what kind of material misrepresentations were made. Um, you know, we, we don't know quite yet who and who, who who should be pointed to as the culprits, right? At, at least in the end, you know, we know there could be different people. We have the cul- very culpable. public faces, but there yeah. are more people involved in this company. Exactly. Yeah. You know, what did, what did certain employees know? You know, what it would seem like, it, it, it sounds like it was a tight circle of people who knew that they were taking risks with, you know, customer funds that they were not authorized to do. And of course, that will all come out once once this case is unraveled. And I think similar things happened as we went through the Theranos case. And, uh, you know, I, e- either way, um, there, there was an injustice and there needs to be temporal punishment for those uh, violations of the law and those injustices. And we do hope, you know, certainly for all of these individuals, we hope that there's true contrition and repentance and reform that over time they recognize, you know, I screwed up. And, uh, and you know, it sounds like, and I'm hopeful that that's what, what has happened in the case with Theranos. Um, but, uh, and, and, and we do hope that in the end that the people amend their ways, right? Um, I think, yeah, you raise a lot of really complex uh, questions for the last couple minutes of the podcast. I mean, so I think repentance is one of them. Let me say on the Elizabeth Holmes thing, I haven't followed it super closely. So um, I, I do, I, so she's she's convicted of fraud. Um, I would say maybe two things stand up. One, Luke Burgess, who I mentioned earlier, wrote an interesting piece on this where he, he actually thinks she's being scapegoated uh, as like amidst all, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I, I just, maybe you know, like, no, I, that, yeah. that like, it's interesting. It's like, there's all this kind of fraud, like, oh, we'll just get one person and take them down to scapegoat them to kind of, this is a Girardian insight, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're going like, to create some kind of catharsis and everything. But so I, I'm not sure how much she's being, if that's accurate or not. But so um, the other thing on, then there's another question is like, there should be proportionate sentencing. And so she 11 years or 20 years? 11 years. 11 years. And so I'm not sure like 11 years in prison. I, I, I don't know the details. So I think yeah. that's why I, I can, I, what do they say in Congress? I can revise and extend my remarks. Yeah. But, but it's like, I wonder like, is 11 years proportionate? I mean, she's, is she at, what kind of threat is she to society? And like, you know, what, what are the costs? I, I don't know those. They, we have to think about those things. Um, so um, so I don't have a great answer, but I think that's a question that we think about proportionate Um justice. And then I uh, think the other question is repentance is a very interesting point because repentance is, is, is essential. And in one sense, we've lost a concept of repentance in the United States and the West, um, that repentance is to acknowledge our failings, our sins, our errors, our evil, and then make uh, rep, you know reparation for them. Um, and then in a sense, you are... Um, You've been atone, you've made a tone, make your tone. Now, of course, at like, one minute, yeah, as Wycliffe, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. And so, I mean, of course, like all of us are, you know, we're Christians here, so like this idea of like atonement, a cat, like they understand, like this is partial. What's happening? This is a very central part. What is the atonement, right? <laughs> that 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 Jesus is atoning for us, and that creates at one minute to brings you back into the community. Um, and so, I think part of like the the even the punishment 
and the repentance and the punishment are all geared towards reunifying the community. What we have now is almost like, you're disgraced forever, right? Which is exactly the opposite of, say, I'm a Catholic, so of like a Catholic understanding of repentance, forgiveness, reunification, because you are, in fact, a son or daughter of the loving God. And so now you're brought back in. And and so this is this shapes, these ideas are not simply theological, they actually shape our justice system. Like, you know, Leviticus 19.16 is there should be impartiality and justice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, I think the, the I, I don't, I'm not saying anything I, like, uh, I'm not giving an answer, but I do think um, really, really thinking about about repentance uh, and and justice and proportionality um, are are really important are important things, and um, and you do need you do need temporal uh, uh, punishment, but again, it I think it has to it has to fit into like a broader concept, and again, I'm, I'm and this is like I'm I'm beating this dead horse of rationality, but when we don't have a deep concept of reason and morality, then in a sense, we're always grasping in the dark. And so you see a lot of kind of erratic behavior, uh, even in our, 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 some of our, our, the way we think about justice and like who gets punished for what. And it seems to be somewhat erratic. And then like, you know, you have this felony, you get a felony and then forever you have a felony, yeah. right? So like, you know, this a poor man gets out of prison, he's a felony forever, right? I mean, I think that like there has to be some, I think, that you enter, this is a whole different podcast, but but I think rethinking about how we think about justice in light of repentance is a really, really good question, Dan. Yeah. Well, let's call it a wrap there. Uh, we will talk about that more another day, I'm sure. Uh, thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look at the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to Stephen. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week.